Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, I sat down for an exclusive interview with Fox News foreign correspondent Trey Yinks. We covered some of the journalists' lives that have been lost in the war, what he saw firsthand with his own eyes while stationed in Kiev and other parts of the country, how misinformation and disinformation is still rampant with respect to this conflict, and what makes Trey run with a mic and camera to war zones when others would not. And when I say others, I mean me and Nick specifically. That interview in a little bit, plus later on in the program, the recent coverage of Florida's controversial parents' rights bill has been dominated across the media outlets. It's gotten my attention, as well as the most magical place on earth. Nick and I will discuss as part of our (laughs) new game, we are calling how many buzzwords can we fit into this segment? More on that later on. But first, He's a foreign correspondent over at Fox News. If you remember a couple episodes back, we spotlighted the tremendous work that some of the journalists have been doing out in the Ukraine. And this is one of them, Trey Yankst over at Fox News. Trey, Mike Leon, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thank you. Trey, uh, I want to get into a bunch of different things with you and, and the kind of why you do what you do, because without people like you, uh, we probably would have been getting the information that, that we need here in America. But First, I'd be remiss as a former Fox guy if you couldn't uh, a little bit elaborate on your relationship with Pierre uh, Zarshevsky, who, who recently passed away, and also the journalist from Ukraine, Sasha Kushianova. Uh, I know your, your colleague, Benjamin Hall, was also injured. If you have any update on how he is doing. But at first, um, take us through a little bit of that traumatic experience and kind of when you found out where you were in the Ukraine when all of that happened. And then if you could a little bit on, on Pierre's life and legacy as a cameraman for the network. Yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail about that day, but I'll just say that Pierre, Sasha, and Benjamin were out on the front lines trying to show the world what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. Some of the finest journalists that I've known in this profession. And uh, Pierre is the best cameraman I've ever worked with. Uh, Benjamin, my colleague, who is currently healing and getting better, I know will be back to tell more stories because that is who he is. 
And I would just say that the work that we do as journalists on the front lines covering these conflicts around the world is extremely dangerous. And we take as many precautions as we can, but still bad things can happen. And certainly it was an honor to be able to work with Pierre, Sasha and Benjamin on this story. And we will continue to tell stories around the world in their honor. Yeah, I think people, you know, to the outside observer don't, don't really understand how that whole process works, how you guys get set up, lodging and everything, where you're going to be shooting from, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, if, if I can, let's get into the conflict at the current hand in the Ukraine. Um, if you could give us the airplane view, the 30,000 foot view, you were in Kiev, obviously you saw firsthand what Russian soldiers were doing, what Ukrainian forces were doing to fight back. Can you give us a sense of your take at the 30,000 foot view level, the airplane view, I like to say, on the conflict overall. So in the early days of this conflict, there was a real concern in the international community that the Russians would quickly take over major population centers across Ukraine. And it simply wasn't the case. We saw a fierce Ukrainian resistance, not only around the capital of Kiev, but across the country as the Russians attacked different Ukrainian positions from the air and the ground. So you had weeks of battle around the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. And just in the past few days, Russian forces have pulled out in places like Irpin and Bucha, very close to the Ukrainian capital. And the devastation and destruction left behind is nothing short of horrific. Civilians who appear to have been executed in some areas, a large mass grave in the town of Bucha. This is a suburb of a European capital that was totally decimated by this conflict. Remember, the Ukrainians were defending and continue to defend their sovereign country. They did not ask for this war. They didn't want this war. And they're now left with a position that is quite difficult. They have to not only defend the cities that are currently being attacked by Russian forces, but also, according to officials we've talked to on the ground, work to take back cities that Russia currently occupies. So in the southern part, in Kherson, a region very close to the annexed part of Crimea that was taken by the Russians back in 2014, and also in the eastern Donbass region. So this war is nowhere close to over. The efforts for a peace settlement or some sort of ceasefire are currently stalled, it appears. And the reality on the ground is that while Russian forces have pulled back from Kyiv, they continue to advance in the eastern part of Ukraine. And so there are still millions of civilians at risk. You know, Trey, I want to get into a couple different things that you just said there. But first, I had before the conflict started, uh, award-winning journalist over at Foreign Policy, Amy McKinnon, on the program, and she was mentioning about Putin overall. You know that sometimes uh, he's made out to be the U.S.'s boogeyman, but he's not ten feet tall. But no one knows what he's thinking. So I'm going to ask you, what is he thinking? Do you think that Putin underestimated? so far, this invasion, the Ukrainian forces fighting back. What is your read and, and take from people on the ground, from people that you have talked to in the region? It's impossible to get into the mind of Vladimir Putin, but we can understand based on the movement of his troops and the actions that have been taken so far by his military, that the Russians did not expect this level of resistance. They didn't expect such a coordinated response by the Ukrainian military and government. And part of that is due to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and the other part is due to the patriotic nature of the Ukrainian people, a population that is willing to put everything on the line to fight back for democracy, to fight back and, and secure their sovereignty. And it is a sentiment that we saw not only around the capital of Kyiv, but also in the weeks before the war, when we were 
were reporting in the Donbass region, when we were reporting in the southern part of the country, you got this sense from the Ukrainian people that they knew a full-scale invasion was a possibility. It was largely considered a nightmare worst case scenario, but they were in some part prepared for that reality. And it's part of the reason that we saw the Ukrainian people digging in, creating uh, Molotov cocktails, digging trenches, and in the early days of this invasion, lining up at police stations in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv to get weapons and supplies so that they could properly fight back against this invasion. And that spirit and that effort to defend their country does continue today. It has shifted based on where the conflict is taking place and where the heaviest fighting is erupting, but it still does continue. And I think as this war enters a new phase, the international community can see just how brutal Vladimir Putin really is and the playbook that he has used, not only on the ground in Ukraine, but as we've seen in other places in the world like Syria, targeting civilian populations in an effort to move forces forward, they can get a real sense of what's happening in Ukraine and understand that when Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is asking for weapons and support, he's asking for them for a very specific reason and with a specific urgency in mind. And that's what's happening right now in Ukraine. Let's get into some of the support from Western nations, obviously, at the onset of this conflict. And I keep calling it conflict because I do want to call it a war. I do want to call it an invasion. I want to keep with the words that that everyone is kind of using. Um, So for people that are listening, you know, I know what's actually happening. We get it. It's a war and an invasion on on the Ukraine. Um, But in, in specific terms, in terms of some of the countries that have helped out so far in the Western nations, what what more do you think the West, specifically the U.S., obviously, and the NATO countries can be doing. And at the onset, we saw all this early military support from a bunch of different nations, even Portugal as well, sending some support. Um, What do you think in terms of all the support they've gotten so far and what more can be done? Well, look, we hear a big concern from Ukrainian politicians and officials who say they appreciate the aid, but they want it to be coming into the country much more quickly. I think you will continue to hear that expression sometimes a frustration from Ukrainian officials because the war is on their doorstep. It's being fought in their cities as we speak. But there are a number of things the Ukrainians are asking for that they're not receiving from the international community. Some of the things are a no-fly zone, MiGs, uh, different planes that could be used to push back against this Russian offensive, and then just more support in the form of anti-tank missiles these air defense batteries that are used to shoot down Russian planes over Ukrainian cities. So in the coming weeks, those requests will stay firm and they may even increase as Vladimir Putin pushes more resources into the eastern part of Ukraine. But there is a substantial amount of Western military equipment and support on the ground currently in Ukraine. And depending on who you ask, the specific requests will vary. But There are clear requests right now out for more air support, more tanks, which it does appear, according to reports in recent days, will be delivered to Ukraine. And then, of course, that humanitarian aid that is critical for the millions of Ukrainians who fled the country, but also the millions of Ukrainians who are internally displaced, who still have left their homes as the conflict expanded and entered different parts of this country. And they are also facing dire situations on the ground, because it's not just leaving your country that can be detrimental to the health and well-being of the Ukrainian people. Having to leave your home and go to a different city where you don't have the resources and the foundation and the support can be quite difficult. 
Trey, you know, we spotlighted uh, a few episodes back, something that you said on air about uh, Russia considering disinformation, at least by their terms, and what it's punishable by in terms of like 15 years in prison for journalists that were spreading, according to them and according to the Kremlin misinformation. I, you know, we had uh, one of your colleagues, a uh, Fox News contributor, Marie Harf, that worked at the State Department on, and we were talking about some of these numbers that are so gargantuan in terms of Russian military troop loss. I mean, if you told the American people that 16,000 U.S. troops died over a four week span, I think there'd be a lot of protest out in the street. I don't want to generalize, but that is a, a large swath of people. The amount of civilians that have been killed, according to U.N. reports, are, are in the 1500, closer to 2000 civilians that have been killed in this conflict. What do you make of all the misinformation and disinformation that we're kind of seeing trickle out? specifically from the Russian side, maybe some numbers from the Ukrainian side that can't be verified. What do you make of all of this misinformation, disinformation out there? Look, there's a massive information war going on in parallel to this conflict that's taking place on the ground in Ukraine right now, and a concerted effort by the Russian government to disseminate disinformation so that people, at least inside Russia, don't actually understand what's happening. And there will be a number of people who look at what's happening and gauge how successful this disinformation campaign by the Russians actually is. But the reality is we know the Russians say things like they are not targeting civilian areas when our cameras and our interviews are evidence that they are indeed targeting civilian areas. They claim that they did not take part in the killing of civilians in Bucha, some of the images that we're seeing today. But all information on the ground from independent journalists and reports indicates it was the Russians who conducted these killings. So that's our role as journalists, to hold public officials, to hold governments accountable for the words that they say and the actions that they take on the ground. Very often around the world, the Russians will claim they are entering into ceasefire negotiations while they continue to bombard cities. It's a very classic Russian playbook to do this. It's very... Uh, disturbing to see the images out of Bucha, the suburb of Kiev, and it really gets to the core of what's taking place and who is paying the highest price on the ground in Ukraine, and that is the civilian population. The Russians started this war with disinformation, a very coordinated act of disinformation. They looked at the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk in the eastern part of Ukraine, some of these separatist-controlled areas, and it was very clear they were trying to put the blame on the Ukrainians. Well, we had just been to the Eastern Front. We were in the trenches talking with Ukrainian soldiers as these Russian-backed separatists targeted their positions. And you could see where the fire was coming from. It wasn't coming from the Ukrainian side. It was coming from the Russian-backed areas. And that is exactly where this war started. But very quickly, in the early hours of this conflict, the Russians targeted cities across Ukraine. It was not just focused on the east. And in the coming days and weeks, it will be critical to get to the core of what happened here, to verify information, to appropriately provide supporting evidence to what happened, and to ensure that amid the fog of war, international journalists are able to gather evidence and facts and make sure the world knows what happened and what continues to happen on the ground in Ukraine. Trey, the title of this episode is called The Danger Zone with Trey Yanks, uh, a play on the Top Gun theme song. Um, I want you to kick back for a second for me, my friend, because I want to get into the psyche of you. I want to know why you run to danger 
when people tend to run away from it and you run there with a microphone and camera, you've had access to the Taliban. You have covered this conflict in Ukraine. You've been other places across the media spectrum. What is it about these type of scenarios, war situations like this that makes Trey Yinks grab his mic and, and take a cameraman with him and say, I'm going to go cover this. I love this job. It is part of my identity. It's something that consumes me each and every day because I feel a massive responsibility to show the world what's happening in some of the most dangerous locations. We've reported in places like Gaza, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, and there's this common thread of trying to find light in very dark places. I struggle but focus on the question of how do I make people care? Because it can often seem like a movie to people thousands of miles away. These atrocities that are being committed against the civilian population, it can be very hard for the brain to consume and understand. And that's part of my job as a journalist in conflict zones to go to these places and make people care to provide as many facts and pieces of evidence as I can, and to put these stories in a way that are consumable, but also relatable. It's part of the reason that we talk about mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and athletes and musicians, because I think that our viewers can grasp the Ukrainian people right now who are under fire, who are watching their cities burn to the ground, are just like you and I. They feel emotion, they feel fear, they feel happiness, they feel love. And I personally feel a massive responsibility to tell those stories. And I feel very grateful to have an organization like Fox behind me that allows me to do that. The ability to go to a war zone is not something that can just easily be done. There's a lot of coordination that goes on behind the scenes. There are efforts from executives and from producers and from crews all around the world that come together in order to make that final product that you see on air. And it would not be possible without the team that I have. It would not be possible without the support that I have from this company. And the reality is there is a focus on making sure the world knows what's happening, not only in Ukraine, but around the world when conflict erupts. And I just feel grateful to have the opportunity to be the guy who gets to go there and tell those stories. You know, Trey, you, you did a recent interview with Forbes. I want to kind of stay on the mother, brothers, uh, children aspect of this, because as a father of, of two little girls, um, you spoke about how children are trying to remain children during this crisis. Right. And, and some of the other invasions that you've covered as well. How are the parents that you've either talked to about this? How are you seeing them manage to create a, a form of reality where their kids can still be childlike in the most difficult of times? I think that's the hardest thing for parents in war zones. I think of the individuals that we interviewed. Sometimes it was a mother and father at a train station as the family had to say goodbye to every military age male who would have to stay behind and fight. I think of a woman named Evgenia Antonienko who was fleeing the town of Erpin right next to Bucha. We spoke to her on a bridge as Russian artillery rounds were landing on either side. And she described a nightmare scenario as she tried to shield the eyes of her young daughter from bodies in the streets of their hometown. And when you look into the eyes of these parents, you understand that they feel such frustration and helplessness because as a parent, you want to protect your children. It's a very basic human desire. And so many of the parents that we meet in war zones around the world, specifically Ukraine, 
have done everything they can to protect their children from the destruction and danger around them, and still it's not enough. And I think that can be very hard to process, but it can also be an opportunity to tell a story because when we're able to speak to Evgenia and tell the story of her family on oftentimes the worst day of someone's life, I think we can tell that journey and, and explain that journey in a way that makes people really grasp just how horrific the scenario is and really helps people to relate to the civilians who are most affected. Trey, before we let you go, something I've asked of a few different people that have come on from different outlets or have different background in government about this is the prognostication part of this, right? Putting your prognosticator's hat on, which is probably a a better equipped hat than most people who haven't been to the region or seen this conflict uh, up close and personal. What is your take on where this ends? I think as Americans, I could speak for myself in terms of actualities, we look for finality in something. And I don't know where I see finality in this, whether it's you know peace talks, whether it's Ukraine being a smaller version of what it was before, um, wh- whether it's Ukraine pushing Russian forces all the way back. You know, <laughs> I don't think that will happen. But what is your read on a month from now, two months from now, a year from now, what this conflict ended up in? I think it's too soon to tell where this leads two or three months from now. The reality is that Ukrainian forces are not going to let Russian troops occupy their cities. And we talked about this a little earlier on, but the Ukrainians have been quite successful in taking back territory from Russian forces. They have put up a fierce resistance. And so while weapons continue to flow into this country, the Ukrainians are plotting to take back land that's currently controlled by Russian forces. So this is not a scenario where Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will simply sit back and say, you may have it to the Russians, to Russian President Putin. It's much different on the ground. The Ukrainians still have a fighting spirit. They still have support from the international community, and they still have a population that is prepared to enter new battles and new fronts against the Russian invaders in their country. And I think that is significant because while you've seen the Russian forces pull back from the area around Kiev, there are places in the south. We talk about that city, Mariupol, the port city. We talk about the Kherson region. We talk about Luhansk and Donetsk that are partially controlled by Russian forces. If the Ukrainians are able to hold territory that belongs to them, and there is a level of stability that allows them to move forces further east, we can expect Ukraine to fight back against the Russians and try to take territory. So you, what you may see over the next several months is a front line that's constantly changing. In the eastern part of Ukraine, there has been a war over the past seven to eight years where a front line just stood still. And it moved slightly week to week, month to month, but there was a concerted effort by the Ukrainians to hold a solid front line. And so what we're looking at today is a war that is in some areas expanding, is still very active and shows no end in sight. And so there will be peace talks. There will be efforts to get a humanitarian ceasefire in place to allow more civilians to get out of harm's way. but the Ukrainian military will continue to fight for the sovereignty of their country. And Russian President Putin will likely not leave without 
a territorial victory that allows him to save face at home. So I think we are looking at much more conflict, unfortunately, in the days, weeks, and months to come. And at the same time, we can only hope that humanitarian law is respected and that the civilian population is able to get out of the way. Because as we have seen in the images today and throughout this conflict, the civilian population of Ukraine pays the highest price amid this war. And while there may not be a political settlement in the short term, the civilian population will have to survive amid this conflict. Dre Yingst, as a former uh, a PA writer over there at the network, I always tell people about the good work that the News Division House uh, at Fox does. You are a product of that, my friend. I wish you continued success and stay safe wherever you are traveling to. Check out Trey Yingst across Fox's shows. He's a foreign correspondent. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today, Trey. I truly appreciate it. Mike, thank you. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Today's episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by UseCardboardBoxes.com. Nick, a new sponsor to the show, UseCardboardBoxes.com. What are you using when, whenever you, when you guys moved to Eastern Pennsylvania? How did you get boxes and pack everything up? Did you pay movers? Take me through that process. Yeah, we 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 did pay movers. Um, so we went. Through, well, I mean, again, we've done a couple of moves. So most recently to to Pennsylvania. Yeah, we had to go through that process. You know, get movers and they bring their own boxes. And yeah, it's not it's not the greatest thing. I gotta be honest. Um, so you know, when you mentioned this organization, like I started reading up on them. It was fascinating, folks. First and foremost, with use cardboard boxes. On the website, it's telling you more of the most important data points. Currently, 5,461,100 trees saved because of the work of this organization. Um, I'm blown away by it, so I'm excited to use them. And we have all kinds of stuff. We're not moving anytime soon, but I definitely need things to get boxed up and donate or just move around the house. So I'm excited to use them. Listen, I've used, I've personally used usecardboardboxes.com. I got turned on to them by a friend. They're very easy to use. You go onto their website and you you can check out the kits, the boxes. They come with supplies. So I ordered like one of the, the early packages of just moving boxes, right? So they'll send you like, you know, either wardrobe moving boxes, uh, large moving boxes, medium moving boxes, lar extra large ones, whatever sizes that you need for your house, your apartment, whatever it is, you go to usecardboardboxes.com and you're able to right away get cardboard boxes sent out to you the supplies like the packing tape uh the ability to to write on the boxes so that way the movers know what room this is going to go to if you go to our show note links right now uh all you got to see is you'll see a link for used cardboard boxes right in there and you click on that link and at checkout you're going to enter the promo code new customer all one word new customer at checkout you're going to get five percent off of that purchase head to use cardboardboxes.com today all right our thank yous there to trey yanks fox news foreign correspondent uh we've mentioned this a bunch on the show 
about the journalists that are over there doing great work. Uh, if you've a couple episodes back, we reference the folks at CNN and Clarissa Ward and Matthew Chance. I mentioned Benjamin Hall and Trey Yankst over at Fox. Uh, Nick has been following Tim Mock on over on NPR, who's been doing a great job covering everything in Kiev. Um, Trey, for me, was one of those guys that I really, really wanted to talk to. It was either him or Clarissa, to be honest with you, because when I think of the unprecedented access to the Taliban during what happened with Kabul and, and Afghanistan and the war, two reporters stood out to me that both had ridiculously insane, unprecedented access to that camp. And that was Clarissa Ward and Trey Yanks. So to be able to have him on the program and talk to him is phenomenal. Um, you heard a little bit, Nick, about why he does what he does, what he saw firsthand, some of the things that he said about what Russia is doing to misinform their own public, what they're doing in terms of killing civilians, um, where he feels this may net out over the next couple of months to year. He doesn't feel like there's any resolution anytime soon. What were some of your takeaways from listening to trade there? Yeah. I mean, what first to that is it was interesting. His response to your initial question about, um, you know, reflecting on the the recent, you know, lost life of a journalist and the you know, others who've been injured, uh, was very telling. Um, I think it's something he's still processing, but it's also something about, I think very much about Trey's career now is about not making the journalists, the story. You know, the stories about people in Ukraine, unfortunately, there are people who are reporting what's going on that are getting hurt and losing their lives in the process. And uh, I thought Trey just was very upfront about the fact that this is not the place for him to to try to speak more about it. Um, and that, so that, that stood out to me. You know, what also what also stood out was, you know, Trey is a good example of why we do this show, um, you know, for a just a grounded, excellent reporter, very clear on what he knows in the field, very clear about how there is no mistaking here. <laughs> you know, unlike certain people um, in the media, there is no both sides in this. Um, you know, in Trey's reporting, clearly this is an invasion. You know, a couple of times in your interview, he uses the word war. You know, you would use the word conflict, which is you know right now, you know, for most like journalist out journalistic outlets, is the word that's being used. But Trey is kind of like, I'm not playing with this. <laughs> this right. is a war. This is an invasion. I'm seeing on the ground floor. Um, but Trey's why we do the work that we do at Can We Please Talk, putting people like that who know what they're talking about in front of all of us to to inform our discussions. You know, whether we're doing it in our offices, water coolers. You know, if you still have a water cooler in your workplace, uh, in text exchange with friends, whatever, just doing it from an informed place. Um, but lastly, I, I thought you know you tied. I really appreciated how you tied the story of what's happening in Bucha with what. Um, the mass graves that have been discovered and, you know, what Trey's seeing in his reporting of this is just adding another layer of realism to this, you know, up until recently, there's an idea that this is a conflict. This is, you know, two armies battling it out. We're talking now what feels a form of genocide, you know, when you're talking about civilians just being murdered, just packed away, left in the ground. And this is the result of Russian aggression. And Trey doesn't mince words with that. Um, and we're going to talk in a moment about what's very different about his reporting and where he stands on this, despite where other people at his network and others tend to cross lines in terms of where they lay the blame in this conflict. Well, let's get into that. Let's segue into our final segment, because um, you and I have been texting back and forth about this uh, when we when we booked Trey to come on the program. And I struggle with this because everybody knows, you know, that I worked there once upon a time. 
Um, I loved my time at Fox News. Um, I wanted to stay a little bit longer. I just ended up getting a full-time job um, with benefits and stuff like that. I was working freelance there, but 40, 50 hours a week, or else I would have stayed there, to be honest with you. I love uh, producing news. I loved what I was doing there. I worked assignment desk. You know, uh, I was working on obit packages. You know, I was working on nightly news cut-ins. I was working on the weekend, on the weekend shows like what Mike Emanuel hosts on Fox News Live. So a lot of it was news-centered. A lot of it was what's coming in from the Associated Press. Let's cut to this. Let's cut to that. And then booking guests to come on the program and talk about different things that are playing out. It wasn't really around the 8 to 11 primetime blocks, although sometimes I was working in those hours. But I was working on nightly news cut-ins that, you know, or around that. They don't do those anymore, actually, funny enough. Not sure when they got rid of that. But so I struggle a little bit because you and I have talked about this offline. It's in one regard, there's the news side of the house. And I mentioned this to Trey, you know, as we were signing off on the interview, it's, you know, there are good people that work there. And we've had a few on this program. There are good contributors that go onto that network. And we've had a few on this program. But then the problem lies at, from 8 to 11, and specifically 8 o'clock, because uh, in one regard, you have somebody that is touting points that have been disseminated by one side of this war and conflict, uh, and that being Russia. And then the rest of the network is covering it pretty fairly in terms of what is happening with this invasion, with the refugee crisis with, you know, in terms of uh, the humanitarian aid that's going out, what the U.S. is doing in other Western nations. So I want to transition that into our final segment because we're going to play some clips from two uh, uh, networks here, and you're going to find out which one's which in a second, about Florida's recent bill, because the media coverage of this has now entered into the vortex of what's happening with Disney and obviously the most magical place on earth, like I alluded to at the beginning. Um, on one side, you've got Disney employees and some LGBTQ advocates that were scheduling a walkout in protest of not only the slow response by their Disney CEO, Bob Chappick, uh, in terms of criticizing Florida's legislation, which was just recently signed into, into law, which bars instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity in the kindergarten through third grade. Remember, kindergarten through third grade. So if you're thinking about a five to probably eight years old of age, where there can't be any uh, lesson planning or curriculum taught about sexual orientation and gender identity, we could argue that there isn't because there's been no proof of that happening in school. Doesn't exist. Right, exactly. But, <laughs> but I'll, help, I'll help you all out for right, that's those the you keep score help. I was going to say, that's the second part of it. And that's why we have an educator as part of this program. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got politicians like Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, obviously. He's accused the entertainment conglomerate of bending to woke politics. So Nick and I want to play a new game today uh, where I play some clips for Nick and we talk about how many buzzwords can you fit into that segment? Are you ready for this, Nick? So this is, this is the first clip I'm going to play from you. You're going to know, you're going to guess what network it's from. You're going to listen to the buzzwords and you tell me how many buzzwords can they fit into that segment? And then who, who is the actual news outlet? Take a listen to this. Another big American company going woke, Disney, caving to the liberal mob and pledging to help repeal the new parental rights bill that just signed into law by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which Democrats in the media have completely lied about and called bigoted. For a company like Disney, 
uh, to say that they, this bill should have never passed. First of all, Tucker, they weren't saying anything when this was going through the House. They only started doing this because the mob, the woke mob, came after them. If we had done a bill that prohibited uh, talking about the abuse of Uyghurs in China, Disney would have supported that legislation. All right, Nick, uh, how many buzzwords were in that segment, can you guess, uh, from the buzzword library? I, I, I counted four. They were repeated, though. Uh, so we've got woke, of course, which is basically, yeah, well, let's go through the, and then we can sort of talk about underneath the service, what they really mean. Uh, so we got woke. We got reference to China. That's always my personal favorite for the people who don't like the NBA. Um, we had liberal. That's always a great one. Uh, shout out to Roger Ailes. Um, let's see. We had, you had, mob, you had mob in there. Mob. That's true. Well, that's well, always well, a good one. Mob, right. Yeah. That's four. Um, I think that's the, what I counted. But again, I think they were a couple times repeated that. What did you get? Yeah, I thought there was a fifth there. I'm trying to remember uh, which one. Now, if you can guess what network that was on, obviously, just from I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Fox News. And I think I think that was what's his uh, I forget that clown's name. Well, what's it's his? Jesse Waters, like I've mentioned before, uh, host of the five and now host his own show at 7 p.m. A lead into Tucker Carlson. I think he's trying to be. Uh, his best Tucker Carlson. So, okay. So that was one clip of the way one network is covering what's happening with the bill. Now let's play another clip of a congressional person being on a program and telling you what their thoughts are about the bill. Take a listen. When you target the main uh, economic driver for the state of Florida, there's going to be consequences. I would never pick a fight with Mickey Mouse or try and destroy the happiest place on earth here in Florida. Let's remember that Disney employs close to 70,000 people. It contributes about $70 billion to the tourism economy here in the state, and it has ripple effects. There's absolutely no freedom here, Alicia, unfortunately. There's no freedom for parents, no freedom for teachers, no freedom for students. Well, how many buzzwords did you hear in that one? Uh, because I, I mean, heard maybe one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the repeated one there is no freedom. Right. Um, and it's catching me on a on a not great day. I'll be honest. Uh, Mike and I were, you know, oftentimes one of us will find an interesting tweet on Twitter. We just sort of pass it back. Although it's funny because we both follow a lot of the same people. Right. Uh, most recently in the concept of freedom, quote unquote, here, um, you know, there is a, a, I don't even know the word for it, man. <laughs> there is a, a child who has her name written on her back in marker. It's a Ukrainian child um, with just personal information and it's written that it's written on her back uh in the event that her parents are dead and they're trying to locate the family for this child so basically parents are already you know preparing their child to be orphaned um you know we talk a lot about freedom in this country and i think sometimes we have to step back and and gain a little perspective you know when we think about that that said you know i've said this on this on this program before that you know this bill makes absolutely no sense and really what it feels like is it continues to weaponize uh uninformed masses similar to what we see in texas with the abortion bill you know the right has figured out that while they themselves can't pass legislation that basically is openly discriminatory against uh people of color or the lgbtq community what you can do is you can rile up ignorant people so now when you start to give parents the right to essentially dime out a teacher for the conversation of uh, L any discussion around LGBTQ. Because remember, folks, this is important. 
it's not just about whether or not curriculum, you know, that you're not teaching anything as it relates to gender identity, which again is not being taught. Go look up any curriculum set in the state of Florida and prove me otherwise. But it's also the fact that the conversation about gender identity can't show up in your classroom, which means that if you are the child of gay parents and you talk about your parents, you can't bring their gender into that conversation. And we get into a place where essentially what you're doing is norming, because if this is the matter of a heterosexual couple, no one's going to say anything. But heaven forbid you have two dads or two moms, or they don't. They're gen, they, there is no gender identity for your parents whatsoever, or for yourself as the child. You're not in a safe space. And I would ask, what is the the point? Actually, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to ask what's the point because we know what the point is. The point is that the right wants to continue to bang on family values as it relates to gender identity. In the case you want to continue to norm a cis hetero, I'm not using the pronouns correctly, but just a norm that they consider which we've seen forever. Um, and it's offensive and it's ignorant and it's we're seeing it play out. But again, to that clip we just heard, the you know, freedom is a is a very interesting concept in the in the United States, the way we think of losing freedom as opposed to what's going on right now with a country that's being openly invaded. And and that's just not sitting well with me right now. Yeah, that clip uh was from MSNBC uh and Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, that was who that clip was as she was on the program with Felicia Menendez over on MSNBC. I would agree, like this is a little bit different on the freedom side of this because Nick was uh, alluding to the tweet from Anastasia Lapatina. She's a, a reporter at the Kiev Independent. She's the one who posted that tweet with the kid who has writings on her back uh, in case her parents are killed in the conflict of where other family members um, can find this girl. So when you're equating that and and in terms of freedoms, I think we just throw around that buzzword way too much here in this country. People truly don't understand what is going on in other countries. Uh, I want to go back to the first clip um, because this is my problem with the former employer of mine. Um, I, I struggle when in prime time I see a disingenuous figure that is leading or, you know, the, the chief anchor of that network, what that network is associated with the guy who has the biggest audience there, having a governor who's coming into an election year, that's signing legislation of something that cannot be proven out throughout his schools. Uh, just like the exchange with Jen Psaki and Peter Ducey that happened uh, earlier yesterday, where he was asking her about is the white house supporting legislation for uh, younger ages, because this bill is only from K to three. And Jen Psaki answered back with a, can you show me where in Florida schools you're seeing this play out curriculum wise? And I, and I thought of this because I wanted to get your take on it about how curriculum and lesson plans are done and made. I mean, you were you a teacher for a while. Um, now you work with school districts. Uh, you know, it's one thing to plan out what we're going to talk about in terms of math, science, social studies, history, uh, you know, uh, English, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's no, I don't recall from ages five, six, and seven learning too much about sexual preference and gender identity. Uh, the only time I really learned it within curriculum about that kind of stuff was like health classes that you would have as you get older from sixth and seventh grade. So take our audience into that because from an education standpoint, <laughs> this is not done. Like the, in terms of speaking about a kid 
coming up to potentially a school psychologist or to a teacher and saying something like this, right, to them, hey, I'm, I'm feeling a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. What is the normal protocol that a teacher would do? Wouldn't you take us inside of that scenario? I thought about this today, and I want to pivot to that because nobody better than you to be able to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, it's fun you're asking me the question about guidance counseling. I have a, I have a good friend who is a guidance counselor, and I'm tempted to ask her that question now. Yeah, but that conversation, you know, that falls out of the purview of what we consider curriculum and instruction. You know, there's a space for the discussion of, you know, what what is within and out of bounds, you know, in a relationship or more importantly, what a student can get support from, you know, from a school. Um, but when we get to curriculum, what we're talking about essentially is what is a school district asking us or asking teachers or schools to establish in terms of learning guidelines, you know, from pre-K all the way through 12th grade, you know, at every grade level, what are we expecting? Um, everyone pretty much knows, you know, back in 2000, that was like 2009, 2010, I think, uh, with Common Core, you know, an outgrowth of, you know, the Obama administration that had also previously you know, been a continuing push as it relates to standardized testing. And what we're talking about there with, with the Common Core is a set of reading and math standards. So in other words, you know, for your old, use my oldest daughter, Audrey. So in first grade, you know, when it relates to say like math, we can talk about what is the expectation for her to do and as it relates to mathematics. And what that simply means is that these are standards. These are things we expect, we hope to see a first grader able to achieve during that, you know, during that uh, year. And that means that the teacher is then building lessons against those standards. Now, my little you know soapbox speech here is textbooks are not curriculum textbooks are meant to be a form of support you, you can use them to get ideas design lessons around them what have you but they're not the curriculum and if you're misled or if a school leader is telling you that you're supposed to teach to a particular textbook series that is actually a pretty big red flag um Every state has its own set of standards. You know, one of the most fascinating things about this country is the fact that, you know, we have 50 states and we have 50 actually different educational standards. You know, the Common Core was meant to try to bridge that academic gap. Um, but obviously, you know, states' rights advocates prefer to um, make sure that their state gets to decide, you know, what is taught as it relates to English and math. Where this bill in Florida and what we're seeing has happened historically in Texas, you know, with the way textbooks are uh, used, you know, it's basically, it's a very pernicious practice because what you're getting into is you're now starting to cross over to not what you're supposed to you know, be able to apply in, in terms of your reading ability and your mathematics ability. But this also gets into the area of humanity, specifically in terms of social studies. And this is where you get into that place of history. You know, toward the end of the Trump presidency, there was a push to try to put forward what was called the 1776 Act or the 1776 curriculum, which is to basically say, let's undo what was talked about as far as the 1619 project from Nicole Hannah Jones to making sure that we have a different view of American history, one that is more favorable to the founding fathers. And whichever way you side into that, you start getting into a place of where you start to dictate what is actually being taught to students, not necessarily skill, but content. And what we learn as educators is that you sh it shouldn't be that. Like You have to be focused more on how people learn, not what they should learn. You know, that, that ship has sailed a long time ago with the advent of the internet and so many different learning opportunities that exist now that the purpose of school isn't so necessarily to imbue people with knowledge because you can get knowledge from anywhere. It's the ability to, like this show does, to make sure you understand where your knowledge is coming from, where your information is coming from. 
but as it relates to building someone's ability to read critically, to understand math in the, in the multi-dimensional ways beyond you know, fact fluency, like one plus one being two, but understanding why does that, what is that as a concept? That's what curriculum is supposed to do. What Florida is introducing is the attempt to take it one step further. And it's not about reading and math skills. This is saying outright that there's certain things you can't talk about in the classroom and you disguise it by simply saying, well, you, you can't have in your curriculum anything that relates to gender identity, which again, doesn't simply, it just doesn't exist. This is, this is critical race theory again. But now you start to put boundaries on teachers. You're starting to limit what they're allowed to talk about. Not necessarily teach, but as I, as I use the example constantly, if you have a child in the classroom who is gay or their parents have, are gay, you start to put that child in a, in a really uncomfortable situation because you're basically telling them that we're not going to talk about gender identity, but the reality is that you are going to talk about gender identity, but you just only want to talk about certain perceptions of it. Well, more on that in the coming months. Um, you heard it there from the horse's mouth. That's why Nick's on the program, you know, because education and planning out lesson plans, I don't know anything about that. I do know from the media perspective, I, I encourage everybody, I've said this a bunch, diversify your news sources. Watch different times of the day. Don't fixate on one hour of the day. Please bounce around the dial. Our thank yous again to Trey Yinks. For coming on the program, uh, follow him on social media. He's a great follow. Speaking of following on social media, please follow us on IG, TikTok, Twitter at Can We Please Talk Podcast on Twitter at Can We Please Talk. If you want to email us about anything that you've heard from the interviews that we've done on the show, anything from Trey's interview, anything from what we just discussed with what Disney is is trying to do, at least to help out uh, in terms of this Florida bill, email us at can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. Uh, YouTube, you can watch all the video interviews of this. If you don't want to see Nick and I, or you don't want to listen to Nick and I talking, you can just watch the video interviews over on our YouTube channel. Type in can we please talk. Please leave us a five star review and comment across audio podcast platforms. Shout out to ACAS, our hosting platform. As always, I am Mike Leon. And one to talk a little too much about education. I'm Nick Severi. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> That's why we have you on the pod, man. We'll see everybody next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.